you take the Word of God and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at the 19th Psalm, the 19th Psalm. And as you turn there uh, to the 19th Psalm, uh, we think about uh, this uh, Psalm has much to do uh, with the Word of God. Uh, we have to settle in our minds as a Christian, as Christians, uh, where the truth of God comes from. And we have to settle uh, the fact that uh, what we have and what we hold in our hands uh, is given by inspiration of God, uh, that God is the author and He has communicated to man. And we also have to be aware of the great battle that has been going on for quite some time, uh, the battle raging against God's Word. And uh, certainly when we uh, study the Word of God, we find that uh, attacks against God's Word is not anything uh, new at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, we see some assaults during the first century when the Bible was written that people were perverting the gospel of Christ. And Paul reproved uh, the churches of Galatia, for example, who were being removed from the gospel. We, saw, we see also throughout history the assault of uh, the Roman Catholic Church that began in 400 A.D., uh, where, which sought to stop any translation of God's Word into the common tongue. And uh, many people throughout those, uh, we call this uh, during that history, uh, the Dark Ages, many people died with the attempt to get the Word of God into the language of the common people. Uh, but one of the attacks against God's Word that we still feel the effect today is the assault against God's Word that came from uh, the modernist uh, from the 1800s. By the mid-18th century, uh, it was, uh, that, that is considered the age of enlightenment. The age of enlightenment in which uh, rationalism posit was positively encouraged. And during this age of enlightenment, uh, we should properly call that the age of unbelief or the age when people began to doubt the Word of God. And modernist and, uh, or theological rationalism began in the early 1800s in Germany and quickly spread to England and America. And it began to apply, for example, the theory of evolution to the Bible. Uh, it um, uh, claimed that the Bible is not God's revelation to man, but it is merely a record of man's search for God. Uh, and the miracles of the Bible were beginning to, con to be considered as myths. Uh, there was, for example, uh, the shorter Oxford English Dictionary in 1934 correctly defined enlightenment as this, shallow and pretentious intellectualism, unreasonable contempt for the authority and tradition. And when they meant the authority is the authority of God's Word. H.E.J. Paulus was... Uh, one example of a modernist, and he devised the naturalistic explanation, for example, of Christ's miracles. He claimed, for example, that Jesus did not actually walk on water, but that he was walking on the shore in the midst of fog, and it only appeared that he was walking on water. And he claimed that Christ did not die on the cross, but only swooned, and in the coolness of the tomb he revived. So those are the, that was uh, 1761 to 1851. You have many uh, men like Davis Tross and John Stuart Mill, R.L. Banny in 1881, 
and um, Munhall, many of those men were beginning to uh, put doubt on the Word of God, and uh, the modernism and uh, liberalism began to creep into the churches. Uh, those who assaulted God's Word actually primarily came not from the world, but from religious institutions. In 1881, in the midst of all of this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this. He says, A chasm is opening between the men who believe their Bibles and the men who are prepared for an advance upon Scripture. Those who hold evangelical doctrine are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost, who call justification by faith immoral, and hold that there is another probation after death. Attendance at places of worship is declining and reverence for holy things is vanishing. We solemnly believe this to be largely attributable to the skepticism which has flashed from the pulpit and spread among the people. Now Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was part of the um, um, Baptist uh, Union, actually saw that liberalism and modernism began to infiltrate the Baptist Union and ended up uh, separating from it because of modernism that was creeping in. We come now to Psalm 19, and we find this psalm is, uh, has a great emphasis on the Word of God. We may, some people even consider Psalm 19 uh, just a snippet of Psalm 119, a shorter version, if you would. And we're going to read here this psalm, and no doubt if we would choose a theme for this psalm, uh, it's not just limited to the Word of God, but rather it is about how God has revealed Himself to man. If you notice with me Psalm 119, we're going to begin reading here in verse 1, Psalm 119 and verse 1. And we have to settle in, in, in our hearts the authority, the veracity, the inspiration of the Word of God. And all of us at some point in our lives have to settle on that. Because the truth is, we know that we have settled that doctrine. When we find ourselves in trouble, where do we go to for answers? Do we run to the world? Do we run to the uh, modern institutions or today the modern uh, blogs and all those things that are put out there? Or do we run to the Word of God? Where is our authority? Have we determined that? And we're going to find here that this is a no doubt a great declaration of God Himself as a revealer. So in Psalm 119, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, just 14 verses here. And let, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, verse 1. And the Word of God says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is 
perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I'd like to bring your attention here to the very last verse. He says, let the words of my mouth and notice the meditation of my heart. I'd like to preach this evening on uh, this expression, the meditation of my heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Lord, we believe that your word is inspired. It comes directly from you to us so that we might know you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to settle the fact that we have your perfect word today, uh, that you revealed yourself and you've made yourself known to us and I pray that you'd help us to value the authority of your word and to submit ourselves to your word. Help us to see the great benefits that come about when we have settled this truth in our own lives. Lord, may we uh, benefit from the study of your word this evening, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look at here at Psalm 119, we see if we would break down this psalm, we would find that we could separate perhaps in three parts. Now, it's interesting that some people have said that this psalm is actually a mistake. There are, it should be two psalms. The first one is verse 1 through 6, and the second one is verse 7 through 14. Because, they, well, the first part is about uh, creation, and the second part is about God's Word. But I find actually that we can reconcile both of those together. Because the general theme of this psalm is God as the revealer. And there are several ways that we can look at this psalm here as if we would maybe break down this psalm. We see that the first part of the psalm, we find how God has generally revealed himself to all men. And he has done so, he has generally revealed himself to all men by the creation and by what we see and by the order that we find around us verse 1 through 6, but then verse 7 through um, uh, verse 10, we, uh, verse 9, we find here that he reveals how God has not just revealed himself uh, generally in the creation, but also that he has revealed himself specifically in his word. From verse 7 through verse 9, he speaks of the word of God, and we'll just look at that in just a moment. But then if we come to verse 10 through verse 14, uh, we see here how all of this worked together, how God has revealed himself generally to all men in the creation. 
And that's a wonderful thing. But then we see how God has revealed himself specifically through his word. But then finally, we see how God desires to reveal himself personally to us as individuals. And that's how we find uh, this psalm. If you would look at the big picture, God is the great creator, the almighty God. And he has, given, he has made himself known to man, not in this general and his, this grand way, but he has made himself known to man in a specific way so that we may know God in his word. But then we have to examine ourselves and see, uh, does this apply to us personally? How do we regard God's general revelation and God's specific revelation we might say that the first part of this revelation is nonverbal. That, that God through the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it, it's not what God has written, but it's what God has demonstrated, what God has shown by creation. But then there is a verbal, there is a, a verbal revelation, not just a nonverbal uh, revelation. And finally, there has to be a personal revelation in all of our lives. You see the wonderful thing about God and His Word is that God is not just the great only and true God but that He is a God who is interested in us personally. Personally. If we look at this uh, first part of uh, this general revelation it is interesting uh, to note several things about this uh, revelation. Notice in verse 1 he says the heavens Declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is the sun, is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth, the, his, the sun, his going forth is from the end of the, of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. And so here we see that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. In other words, they, they, they speak, but their speech is nonverbal. It's not written per se, but nonetheless it is there. When we think about revelation, what does revelation mean? God revealing himself. Uh, the idea of revealing means that God has disclosed himself. He has made himself known. God has disclosed to man uh, things concerning himself in the very creation. You see, God has made himself known, we might say, through creation and through history, even through the consciences of men that God has made himself known in all of those ways. When we think about the creation, we read about Romans chapter 1 that when man knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their imagination and uh, their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Here the very heavens declare the glory of God. Notice the firmament shows His handiwork. He, he says day unto day as we uh, think about every day as we live through cycles it utters speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. 
Uh, understand that when we think about this revelation and this creation, we not only think about what we see visibly with our eyes, we look at the sun and the moon and the stars, but also we have to think about how everything has been ordered and orchestrated. Think about it for just a moment. The fact that we run through cycles. He mentions in verse 3 or verse 2, day unto day uttereth speech. The idea that the way that uh, this earth is ordered, how it goes through cycles, it operates by certain laws. It operates by a certain order. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. And he's saying here that as we look at the order of creation and how everything has been orchestrated and how everything functions today, how, by the way, how things can be understood, that is the very proof that God has made Himself known. The fact that the world can be understood at all shows that there is an intelligent designer behind it all. God is not just the creator, but he is also the sustainer of the very creation. He says there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. You see, this revelation of God has been made known to all men. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what nation they come from. The language of God through His revelation of creation is all the same throughout all nations, all people, all tribes, and all tongues. He says in verse 4, Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, God speaks without words. He's made Himself known without words simply by observing all that we find in the order of all things. The Bible says that in them, verse 4, hath He set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His, the sun, his going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, it's interesting that we understand things that perhaps they did not have the technology to understand then. But they knew it by divine revelation. They knew that the cycles that notice the sun, he speaks of the sun, is going forth from the end of the heaven and his, the sun, his circuit unto the ends of it. You see, when we think about the vastness of the universe and the creation, there's a whole solar system that operates and that moves, that hangs on absolutely nothing. Who has ordered that? God. You see, when they, at that time they did not have yet the technology to be able to observe it, they would know that very thing by divine revelation. By the way, which is further proof that the Word of God, that declaration itself is proof that the Word of God itself is divinely aspired. It comes from someone who is outside of the world, who gives to man information about the world before man even discovered that information about the world. And so God has divinely revealed Himself through creation. And wonder what a wonderful revelation. That's why the Bible says that it is the fool who hath said in his heart, there is no God. It is not logical for a man to deny to see the order and to understand the earth as it is and how it works and how it moves. 
without understanding that there is a creator behind it all. We have this general revelation and we uh, think about the, the vastness of the universe, but then uh, that is, uh, if you would, a general revelation. And that type of revelation, that type of revelation is enough to condemn a man. But it is not enough to save him. Even within this uh, revelation, we might say, include as well that God has revealed himself, uh, not just generally in the world, but internally into every man. The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 1 and even in chapter 2, whether you come from a religious background or you come from uh, no religion whatsoever, uh, there is a, a, a conscience that works in man, that testifies to man, uh, that even though he did not grow up knowing and hearing about the law, he is alone to himself. In Romans chapter 2, he expresses that, that the conscience itself testify the moral standard, the law of God, if you would, is revealed in the very heart of man. But now we come in uh, Psalm 19 to not just the general revelation, but we come to uh, the specific revelation. If you know this specific revelation from verse 6, uh, through verse nine, th through verses nine, there are six statements about God's word. You notice, verse seven says, "The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring." Forever, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I'd like for you to note several things about this list, those six statements about the Word of God. I, I don't know if uh, uh, perhaps that's why we refer to Psalm 119 as an expanded commentary, but this is pretty concise. And when we think about the Word of God, notice first of all that the, we, we find through every one of those statements, that, there, that, the, that the Word of God is divine in its source. Do you notice here, every time he says, of the Lord. Do you notice verse 7? The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are pure. Uh, the fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true. He, he repeats that in every single statement so that we do not miss that what we hold in our hands is divine in origin. It did not begin with man. It did not, uh, at some point in time, man came up with those commandments and those laws and those testimonies. Those laws are the Lord's laws. Those testimonies are the Lord's testimonies. Those statutes are the Lord's statutes. The commandments are the Lord's commandments. Uh, the fear that we get from the Word of God is the fear of the Lord. The judgments are the Lord's judgments. They come from God. They are divine in origin. Of the Lord is repeated six times. Every statement 
points to the divine origin, showing here that it is not man who possesses this divine authority, but this divine authority comes from the Lord himself. It is interesting as we look at those six statements, there are six separate, uh, we might call them titles for the scriptures. Notice they are referred to in verse 7 as the law, as the testimony, as statutes, as commandment, as fear, and as judgments. And so all of those titles, by the way, show us here, this is all scripture. But it would be like if we are looking at a, a, a diamond and we look in all the different facets. It's one diamond, but you see all the cuts on every single side. And God's Word shows us here, uh, the Lord shows us that His Word has many facets. It, it deals with many different areas of men's lives. It, it answers all the needs of men, whether they are laws or testimonies or statutes or commandments or fears or judgments. There are not only six titles, but there are also, if you notice, six characteristics of the Scriptures. Do you notice here in verse 7, the law of the Lord, here is the first characteristic, is perfect. The second characteristic in verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Uh, notice verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord, verse 8, is pure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. Uh, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. So that's the characteristic of God's Word. It is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And it is true. There are not only six titles, there are six characteristics, but there are also six benefits explicitly stated that we receive from the Scriptures. Notice in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Here it is, converting the soul. That's the benefit of God's Word. Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Here it is, here's the benefit, making wise the simple. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. Notice, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Here is enlightening the eyes. That's another benefit. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You see, God's Word is able to convert the soul. It is able to make wise the simple. It is able to rejoice the heart. It is able to enlighten the eye. It endures forever and it produces practical righteousness in our lives. That's the benefit of God's Word. Now if we look at those details, let me make a few comments about God's Word. Remember again that they are divine in origin and uh, while the general revelation is not enough to save a man, it's just enough to condemn him, uh, the specific revelation of God in his word, that is enough to save a man. Why? Because the gospel that we preach comes from God's word. And it is effectual to be able to save those who believe. Uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Well, where is this gospel found? It's found in God's Word. You see, whether there are different titles or characteristics or benefit, God's Word, we will find it to be completely sufficient. 
If you notice here the first expression in verse 7, he says the law of the Lord is perfect. Notice, converting the soul. The, the expression here, the law, refers to uh, uh, primarily when we look throughout the references in the Bible, refers to often the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. It is the divine instruction of God. And notice here the characteristic of the law. He says it is perfect. Uh, meaning here, the word perfect uh, obviously could say that there is no errors in God's word, but the word here means that it is entire, it is complete, it is full, it is completely whole. In other words, he says that the law of the Lord is perfect. It covers every aspect of our lives. There is nothing that needs to be added to God's word. There's nothing that needs to be taken away from it. It possesses everything that man needs. It is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. And notice what it does. Converting the soul. Now here is what I, where I want to spend the time emphasizing specifically in the psalm. And no doubt uh, the scope of this psalm is greater than one message. And I recognize this. But what I would like to emphasize uh, in this particular study is to show us here that uh, where is the Word of God trying to arrive to? Uh, it is the revelation of God, but what is the Word of God trying to do in this world? Can I say that the Scriptures is not intended? The Scriptures was never intended to create some superficial social morality Rather, the Word of God is designed to penetrate the inner person very down to the very soul of man. He says here, the law of the Lord is perfect. Notice, converting the soul. Now, there is a practical benefit that is evidenced in the lives of people practically. But notice, that's not what the Word of God creates. It doesn't create a superficial religion. And if that's all it is, then it's like any other religious book. No, the Word of God goes down to the very soul of man. And the Word of God is so complete and full and entire that it is able to convert the soul of man. You see, in this psalm, the inner man is in view. To convert here means that the law has a direct effect on the soul. We could say that the conversion here means that the word of God, the law of God is able to completely transform your life. That is its efficacy. That is its power. It's not superficial. It is always the soul that is affected first. The Bible even says to us that we as believers, we uh, understand that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But where uh, the uh, word of God has an imprint first is it has an imprint in the soul of man. In the soul of man. Understand that the word of God was not given so that God would make the earth a good place. 
God gave His Word to us so that He might show us that we are sinners in need of redemption, in need of conversion, in need of transformation. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus, ye must be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, and God wants to do a converting work, a transformational work. And that's what the Word of God has, does, and its benefit. We see not only that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, but he says the testimony of the Lord, notice, is sure, making wise the simple. I like the word testimony specifically because this is the idea that, notice, the testimony of the Lord. It's, uh, the word testimony means that God stands at the witness stand. And that God stands before man and He acts here as a divine witness. Uh, the Word of God, the Scriptures that we hold in our hand, it is God giving His own testimony about Himself. As I condemned early on, the modernists came out and says, well, the Bible is not God's revelation to man. The Bible is man's attempt to discover God. No. It is God's divine revelation to man. You see, it is God giving His own testimony. By the way, that is why the testimony of the Lord, because God is at the witness stand. That's why the testimony of the Lord is sure. God cannot lie. The word sure here means that it is reliable. It goes without fail. Uh, even as we think about the Old Testament prophets, the Bible says in 2 Peter uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 19, that they were um, moved by the Holy Ghost. Notice the benefit that it brings. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What are the simple, if we uh, remember in the first chapter of the book of Proverbs, that one of the reasons what the book of Proverbs was written was to help the simple. Uh, well, well, who is the simple? When you look and understand specifically, as we find it in the book of Proverbs, the simple are those who are easily swayed and influenced. Th those who are more susceptible to, to be influenced by the wicked, by the fool. And the, the wise man is the man who is uh, uh, basically skilled in living. It is, uh, by the way, wisdom is always practical. Wisdom is always practical. And so God, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. You think about the simple, I, we, uh, we may tend to think about the simple as somebody who is open-minded about everything. Now you hear today, well, you need to be open-minded. Well, I think that the better, as we understand God's Word, that is the description of the simple. We really need to be closed-minded. To be open-minded and to be susceptible to all influences is not a good thing. We have to be closed and uh, come down to the narrow place and say, No, uh, God's the testament of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Uh, the wise man, again, is the man who is skilled in living. It is the man who, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, his mind is shut off to the scornful and to the wicked 
and to the fool. But his mind is narrowed on God's word, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And so wisdom is always practical. It makes wise the simple. He goes on to say in verse 8, Notice the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word statute, we find that uh, in Psalm 119, we also uh, find it uh, throughout the, the Old Testament, but it basically means uh, these are God's appointments, God's mandates. We could all even say God's commandments, although it's a little different, but uh, as a commandment, the, a statute is not God suggesting. It is God declaring. It is God mandating. It is God appointing. Notice what he says. The statutes of the Lord, notice, are right. In other words, when we come to the word of God, here are uh, God's statute. One man with one woman. That's God's statute. It's not a suggestion. It's not a well, that's this the best way. It's God saying it's the only way to live life. It's the only way to live within God's order. It's the only way. You see, the statutes of the Lord, they are right. And we had best determine in our own lives that they are indeed right. Because they are divine in origin. But notice what it says, it doesn't stop it. That it tells us what the benefit of this is. You say, well, you Christians, you live by the Bible and the statutes of the Lord, and you say it's all right, 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 right. You must be miserable. The opposite is true. You notice what he says? The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. I've given my testimony many times. But I've lived long enough to live a portion of my life determining that the statutes of the Lord were not right. And I'll tell you, I was miserable. Miserable. So miserable that at one point I was thinking about taking my own life. When you determine that the statutes of the Lord are right and you live by them, it rejoices the heart. You say, well, how does that happen? I can't explain that. It's just the way it is. The statutes of the Lord. And so that's why we must determine that the statutes of the Lord are right. And the benefit is evident. It rejoices the heart. These are principles for behavior and living. You see, there is a tendency within man to, as Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. There is a way that seemeth right unto the eyes of men, but the end thereof is the ways of death. You see, the result of submission to the statutes of the Lord, to the demands of God's word, is joy. It's interesting that the pattern even of the New Testament, where often the epistles are written, I'm writing you this so that you might have joy. First uh, John 1, 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. And so the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Notice verse 8, he says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eye. The word here, pure, no doubt, means we could include here uh, perfect, but in light of, he says, the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. The word pure could also be understood as it is clear, it is clean, it is empty of any defilement. In other words, when you uh, come to the Word of God, you will find that the waters are not muddied, they are clear. They are clear. The Bible says to the Christian, we have the mind of Christ. Things are clear. And certainly, there are probably some people in this room who'd say, before I got saved, I understand nothing about the Bible. But now that I've been saved, I see things clearly. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. Enlightenment. Remember, we have the mind of Christ. We understand uh, we uh, understand this, and, and this, is not, this is not something that we say out of pride or arrogance, but it is true. That the only people who understand the world as it is are Christians. The only people who truly understand the world as it is are Christians. Let me encourage you not to try to find answers in the conservative talk show hosts. Many of them are not believers. They do not have the answers. They do not understand the world as it is. But the Christian does. Why? Because he has been enlightened by the Word of God. He says, notice, interesting, we say, well, the next expression doesn't seem to be concerned with the Word of God. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Uh, now here, this expression here, the fear of the Lord, uh, the fear of the Lord is, this is a... a um, a healthy reverence for God. It is uh, the people of God who stand in awe of who God is. And let me just uh, apply this to this aspect. Uh, when we think about the fear of God, uh, the fear is having the right attitude toward God. How is God, in other words, how is God to be approached? How is God to be worshipped? How is God to be understood? Well, where do we find our information about God? We find it in God's Word. Isn't it true that they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in what? In truth. Where do we find the truth about God? It is not our own imagination. It is right here where God has revealed Himself and He's declared to us, why do we come to church and we say, today we gather because we want to worship a holy God. We do so because God says that He is holy, holy, holy. And we desire as Christians to live a holy life because God is holy. You see, this is our attitude Reverence towards God, attitude in worship. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Notice the fear of the Lord is clean. This fear of God, this true fear of God, this healthy fear of God. I, I read a book years ago about, it is entitled, The Joy of Fearing God. Those seem to be contradictory, but they're not. They go together. There is joy in fearing God. Let me explain to you this way. Um, uh, and I've given this illustration before, but it's, it's the best way I can uh, explain it um, of my understanding of it through, through my relationship with my own father. So I, I, I grew up with, I, I have three brothers, and uh, my parents lost the first boy, 
uh, he died, they would have had five. Um, and so five boys, that, that would have been a challenge. <laughs> and I know we were a challenge. Uh, when we would go travel from church to church, when my parents were missionaries on furlough, people would tell us, remind us of what we did years before when we came to church and the things we destroyed and the things we did. And so uh, I have many of those memories, things I don't even remember, but people remember and they bring them up. And I'm grateful for that. And, uh, but, but let me say, for the first part of my life, I, I was afraid of my dad. I, I was afraid specifically, and, and by the way, I don't mean that in, in a bad way. I, I'm saying that I, I didn't want to get caught because I didn't want to get spanked. It hurt. I didn't enjoy it. Uh, a few times, too, is quite humiliating that when we, at, on several occasions, uh, when we did things towards each other or were really mean to one of our brothers, specifically a younger one, my dad allowed my younger brother to spank me. And that was humiliating. Now, through all that, he, he was trying to teach us some things. And I, I, I was afraid. I was afraid. But as I became older, and by the way, although I was afraid, I... I loved my dad. I loved my dad with a passion. Um, when I played basketball, I, my dad was cheering in the, in the bleachers. He is the one person that I wanted to please. I wanted to win the game for him so that he could walk around and be proud of me. That, that, was, my, that was my mindset. Uh, but I remember we were, on a, uh, we were on a basketball team. It was a club in France. Uh, sports team are not played through schools, they're played through clubs. And different towns have different clubs and you join a club and play different towns and cities. And uh, the coach knew, my dad had told him, my sons don't play on Sunday. We don't play basketball on Sunday. And so uh, we didn't, they, they knew that. And so there was a specific tournament that was a qualifier to get into, uh, or it was a qualifier to get into the tournament. And so my coach says, hey, we, I couldn't move the schedule. They used to move all the games for us because it was me my, and my two brothers and we were on the basketball teams. And so they tried to work things out. And, uh, and they, they saw us as Americans, all oh, the Americans, they can play basketball. And so they tried to get us in the teams, and, um, and uh, he couldn't reschedule a game. And so he came to me, interestingly, he didn't come to my dad, but he came to me and said, hey, we got the same, maybe we can talk. It's in the afternoon, so you don't have to miss church. And so I came to my dad and said, hey, coach said that uh, we, we have to, uh, he couldn't reschedule the game, and so the game is on Sunday afternoon. But look, we can still go. I, I won't miss church Sunday morning. I'll be there. And, um, and it'll be afternoon, and then and we'll come home. And my dad says, well, uh, I'll let you make that decision. In that moment, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> well, I decided to go play basketball. Now, my dad had a conviction that, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't do things on Sunday. Uh, my mom would not do her the chores that she usually do every day through the week, through the house. or She would do laundry. She wouldn't do any of those things. Uh, on Sundays. She just wouldn't. Uh, this is not something I said that you have to do. I'm just saying that that's what, how we grew up in our family. And so I played basketball and, you know, I, I, we played the game. We won, by the way. We qualified. So God didn't strike me with lightning or anything like that. And I was so proud of that, too, because I came home and uh, my dad was in his office. So I go in the garage and his office was right there on the left, and I go in there, and I say, hey, Dad, we, first thing I said, we won the game. And then he just looked at me. 
Didn't say any words, but he just looked at me. And I saw the disappointed look in his face. And in that moment, I said, I will never again play on Sunday. You know why? Because I realized I disappointed my father that I wanted to please. And then a fear that was frightened became a fear that was reverend. You see the difference? I don't know if that explains it, but we're not afraid of God, but we should be reverent. And we should have a desire deep down in our soul to please our Heavenly Father because He died for us. And so the fear of the Lord, notice, He says, is clean, enduring forever. In other words, here the expression enduring forever, remind, remind ourselves that it is divine in nature. Remember, it is outside of uh, the world, in other words, the, uh, the wisdom of the world is confined to time periods, as I've preached in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 and chapter 3, uh, that the, the, the wisdom of this world is confined to a time period, and then there's resurgence of man's wisdom and resurgence of man's wisdom. But, but God's wisdom lasts and endures forever, and it's true for every generation. It doesn't matter what culture you're in, or what language you speak, or what time in history you live in. It endures forever. The Word of God is so consistent and true. In other words, we live in a society today to where you no doubt live among Christians who says, well, we're in the 21st century, and so the Bible doesn't apply to us. They, they didn't know what times would be like. And what they're saying is the Word of God does not endure forever. But my friend, it does. And you better determine that it does. It is faithful to all generations. There's one more thing he says. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That word judgments, remember earlier we say that we talked about the testimonies of the Lord? Now we're the judgment. In the testimonies of the Lord, God is a witness. He's witnessing about Himself. He's declaring Himself in His Word. But now we read about the judgments of the Lord. These are God's divine verdicts. The God's divine pronouncements as a judge. And let me say here, in God's courtroom, and God's judgment, there is no appeal to God's judgments. The judgments, notice, of the Lord are true. And then he says, and righteous altogether. Meaning here that the verdicts of God, the judgments of God, no doubts actually produce practical righteousness in our lives. It does something uh, that is effectual. Why? Because early on, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's come down in our souls. And there's been an inward transformation by the Word of God. So we see the psalm, we see, well, God is the glory, the, 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 the heavens declare the glory of God. The general revelation is awesome. But then we have a specific revelation in His Word. And oh, how wonderful that specific revelation is. But the what question is for us now is what are we doing with God's revelation? See, we have the general revelation, specific revelation, but then this revelation has to become personal. You see here how he transitioned now in this psalm and he says in verse 10, Still having the judgments of God in mind, more to be desired are they than gold. 
So we ask, let me ask you, um, what are we chasing in this life? Gold, silver, riches, fame? No, the judgments of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord are more to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Do we desire after God's word? Verse 11, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Verse 12, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. You see, that's why I said early on that the word of God is not designed to produce some superficial conformity to religion. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. It goes down deep inside. And he says here, who can understand his errors? Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. That's what he sees. That's what he wants to do. So who can understand his error? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. You see, God is always, has always been interested in the soul, in the heart. Why? Because that affects everything else in our lives. Everything, everything else comes from that. And so what we have to be honest when we come to the Word of God, the specific revelation of God in His Word, after we see this great general revelation in creation, means that God wants this to be personal to me and to you. He says in verse 13, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. The word presumptuous has the sense of arrogance. When you're arrogant. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. The idea here is that in our arrogance... When we do not observe God in our hearts, when we allow our pride to dominate, when we do not see the error in our secret faults, then we can be kept innocent, notice, from the great transgression. The idea here of great transgression is what is true in our hearts will eventually be made manifest in our lives. Not immediately. We might think of the, the idea here, great transgression is basically much transgression. Things that you never thought that you could do. You who claim to be a believer in God's word, uh, you could get to the place where there's great transgression in your life. Why? Because you've ignored the deep recesses of your soul. And you haven't allowed God. And it could be, it could be that some of us are very good at playing a religious game on the outside. but we have not allowed God to step into the area of the soul. It's easy to say, well, look, Bible says this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this all on the outside, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and our far is, heart is far removed from God. When Jesus Christ came, He found the people who had God's Word doing that very, that very thing. 
outward conformity, but inside their souls was rotting. He says in verse 14, Therefore, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my, what? Heart. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Could you do a test in your life? Run this test. What is it that you place greater significance on in your life right now? Everything you do on the outside? How people perceive you? Or the very meditation of your heart? If you notice, the psalmist doesn't say, Lord, let the people who see my life think that I'm spiritual. Let those who observe me when I come to church think that I have it all together. No, God, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. There is a religious life that we live. But any religion, any true religion, comes because something has happened in our hearts. And that always comes first. It is possible for someone to have all the right conformity on the outside, but whose heart is far removed from God. But it is not possible for someone whose heart is right with God not to have the outward conformity to Christ. We just have to make sure that the heart comes first. Anything else, anything else is hypocrisy. And a good indication, a good indication that the heart is not right is when you do any religious service or any religious conformity and you are prideful about it. Because the spiritual man understands that he which hath begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the work in the heart.